to see so many great conversations taking place. Make sure after the service uh, you stick around and continue those conversations. Um, same at Yarram, if you're there, great um, to stick around after the service and say good day um, and spend some more time chatting with each other. Uh, special welcome, like I said, if you're new this morning, if it's your first time, we're really glad you're with us this morning. We are going to open the book of John this morning, um, John chapter 5. Not John chapter 6, like I started preparing for John chapter 6 this week, uh, only to realise when I um, started looking at, like, uh, what did I, what was, what was John chapter 5 about and I couldn't find all my notes on John chapter 5? It's because we haven't done it yet. Uh, so anyway, John chapter 6 is going to be good and we'll get there, but we're going to do John chapter 5 first. We'll do it in order. Um, so John chapter 5, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 15. It should be on the screen behind me, um, but if you've got your Bible app and you want to read along, uh, feel free to do that as well. Or if you've got a paper Bible. Any paper Bibles in the house this morning? About four? Great. All right, it says this. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Colonnades? Colonnades? How would you pronounce that? Colonnades. All right, we'll go with that. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been disabled for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning and we pray that you would help us to understand it, apply it and trust it. We thank you for your presence in this place and we pray that your spirit might work in our hearts and our lives this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm really enjoying the book of John um, and studying it and finding um, all that it has for us. And, and one of the things I uh, particularly love about John is that it's, um, it's sort of like an apologist's gospel. Um, there's stuff in here that helps people defend or uh, help people who are maybe sceptical of Christianity uh, understand it and come to trust it. Um, and this passage in the book of John has been used historically to sort of um, discount the reliability of Scripture because this story is, um, well, it's, it's a bit extreme, it's a bit far-fetched, but there's some particular details in this story that make it seem like this could not be true. Uh, and particularly through the 18th century with a rise of scholarship and, and all, um, all that was happening in that time, 
people looked at this particular story and said, there's a problem with it. Now, I don't know if you can pick out what the problem is, but there's a problem with this story, and it, it's in verse 2. And I want to I start here because I, I really think it helps sort of help us when we understand what's going on. It'll increase your faith and understanding and um, trust in the Bible. So it says in verse 2, By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, I keep pronouncing that wrong, in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Colonnades. Does anyone know what a colonnade is? Colonnade is like a porch, if you like. If you've got a veranda, it's a roofed area with no walls. And so when people started reading this and studying this scripture, and they said there was a pool with five porches, what kind of pool has five porches? There was no Pentagon pools that were found. Um, there was no sort of way to construct a pool that would have five porches or five uh, areas around it. And so in the right up until the 19th century, this was sort of looked at as like this story must have been made up. Because there's no way that you could find a pool that has five sides and five porches or five colonnades. It seemed far-fetched and unusual. But then, of course, in the 19th century, excavations were carried out, and guess what they found? Not a Pentagon pool, but rather two pools that were side by side, and so they had four porches one on each side, and then one down the centre, dividing the two pools. And so this five-porched pool suddenly made sense. Uh, before, it sort of, you couldn't imagine what was going on. And so I think, James, I don't know if you chucked those pictures up, there's excavations of... Um, so that's what they've unearthed, and it doesn't... It's hard to understand what's, what we're looking at here, but then there's a, the next one, I think, James, gives you a better understanding of what... So they... There's these pools, and then on top of the pools, uh, later on, uh, a few hundred years later, uh, they built a church, and so there's, it's sort of like layers. There's things built on top of things, and so that's why the first one, the excavation picture, doesn't. it's hard to understand what's going on because there's a few things happening on the same site. Um, so there was two pools, uh, and one was particularly deep, and one was... Uh, Shallower, the, the shallower one was used for ceremonial cleaning, and this is the pool that the people, no doubt, were sitting around waiting for the water to be stirred. Uh, and so it's unclear uh, if the deep pool was tapped into maybe a, a natural spring, and that was sort of like a purifying reservoir, if you like, that sort of maybe bubbled up, or there were some springs that activated once or regularly on occasion and sort of overflowed and filled in the, the shallower one. Um, but these five porches were placed around because of the, the climate in the Middle East is hot, sun's quite hot, and so you could imagine you don't want to be out in the sun. So people would sit around in these porched uh, undercover areas, and it was thought that once a day or at some regular point, the water would stir and people would get in and be healed. Uh, and this is what it says in verse 7, uh, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now, we don't know what 
has caused the water to stir. Um, and so no one knows why the water was being stirred. So what happened was people and people who were copying the, the, the original scriptures, the original Gospel of John, saw this problem and thought, we need to give some explanation here of what's going on. And so I don't know if you noticed, but when we read the passage in John 5, we skipped over verse 4. There was no verse 4. Look at your, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, you've got your Bible app, look at John chapter 5, and you'll notice there's no verse 4. It just goes from 3 to 5. I, I even tried to get James to put verse 4 on the screen, but even in the Bible that we have loaded on the computer, there's no verse 4. And there's a reason why there's no verse 4. It's because verse 4 was added in after, and then as we've come to understand that it was added in after, it's then been taken back away. And so you might have a new King James version, and that would have verse 4 still in it. Um, but all the uh, most contemporary versions, CSB, ESV, NIV, these sorts of translations would omit verse 4, and maybe would have it in a footnote uh, at the bottom, sort of explaining the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Again, this is a great... I mean, this is not super exciting, but for me, who's maybe a bit more of a Bible nerd, this is an exciting thing to understand as to the reliability of Scripture. Um, so verse um, 3 says, within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then after that, it was added, waiting for the moving of the water, verse 4, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water would stir it up, recovered from the water, whatever ailment he had. And so that idea of the water being stirred by an angel was added afterwards. And so that's not actually what John recorded um, as, as happened. Have you ever wondered how the New Testament, how can we trust the New Testament is true, reliable? How do we get from 2,000 years ago to today? Um, we don't have the original papyrus that John would have written on. Um, all we've got is manuscripts, or we've got copies, if you like, of the New Testament. And you might think, oh, I don't know, is that good? Um, well, I want to show you this table. Uh, I don't know if you can read that from where you are, but basically what this table shows us is that the New Testament scriptures are, in fact, the most reliable um, historical documents that, you, that we have. Uh, more, more reliable than Aristotle, Homer, um, any of these. You can read them. I can't pronounce half of those names, but you can try. Um, so basically what, what we see here is the date written. The New Testament was written in the first century between 50 and 100 AD, um, give or take, depending on what uh, book of the Bible, what letter. And then the earliest copy, the earliest um, manuscripts that we have physical copies are of were in the second century. So less than 100 years between the original document and the copy. And you can see that the original, um, the difference between the original and the copy of any other document is... I mean, the closest there is 500 years, but most of them are over 1,000 years. And then the number of copies is some, like, thousands compared to tens. And so when you look at um, 
any historical document, any ancient writing, when it comes to the New Testament documents, they are, without question, unmatched, unparalleled, the most reliable ancient documents that we have in the world. Uh, And you can see the accuracy of the copies there, 99.5%. So this verse 4 is a part of that 0.5% discrepancy. And so what would happen now is they would go back to the earliest copies and say, and they would look at them all, compare them all, and say most of the differences are spelling mistakes or grammatical differences, and that 0.5% has no bearing on our core theology or doctrines or anything like that. You could take out anything that's any discrepancy and find, I think in, when we get to John chapter 8, there's another section, a story that's sort of debated whether that was in the original or not. Um, and again, you can take those ones out and they won't change our core theology. Anyway, so when it comes to trusting the authenticity and reliability of the New Testaments, it's unmatched. We don't know how the pool was stirred up, but we know that for some reason it was stirred up. Maybe there was a natural cause to it, maybe like a spring. Um, Maybe it was an angel of the Lord. We don't really know, and that's not really the point. The point is there was a multitude of people sitting by the pool, waiting for the water to be stirred, hopeful that they might be healed. And so the first thing I want us to think about is this idea of the pool that is being stirred on a regular occasion. There's, it says a large crowd or multitudes of people sitting around in these colonnades and these porches, waiting, anticipating, is the water going to be stirred? And is this my time to get in? Is it my opportunity? Am I going to be the first one in? Is my life going to change today? And I think the, the thing that we could take away from this or or think about is the pools that we have in our world today. We might not have a a physical pool that we wait for and hope to get in and and be healed from, but there are things that we sit around waiting for, watching, thinking, when this happens and when it happens for me, my life will change. Uh, We can sit around and watch our bank balance and just think, when it gets to X amount or this amount, when this happens then my life will, it'll be so much better. Everything will fall into place. Or we can sit and watch the government and think, when this person gets in power or when this policy changes or when this happens, then everything will make sense. Or we can sit and we can watch family and friends and parents, hopeful they can bring about our healing. Or we can watch our weight or our popularity or our approval from others and think, when this happens, when I get to this or that stage in my life, then everything will be better. There are pools that we sit and wait and watch. Is this our time? Is it going to change this time for us? And before you know it, 38 years can pass and we are still waiting, watching, hopeful that something might change. And the thing with these pools, like this pool in Bethesda, Bethesda, is that it's popular. They attract a crowd. A large number of people were sitting around this pool, everyone turning up, everyone hopeful. And a crowd attracts a crowd. You can imagine the the scene every day. It's like, is someone going to be healed today? Is someone going to be healed today? The water's stirred, someone gets in. We don't know if people did get healed. We don't. It doesn't give us any indication whether that was true or not. But that was the hope. And that was the, the attraction. There was lots of people there. And I think this 
is a challenge for us as well. Just because something is popular doesn't make it worth sacrificing for. doesn't mean we should spend every day on it. Uh, we must be careful, as Romans 12 verse 2 says, to not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that you can discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Whenever something is popular, whenever an idea is popular, whenever a, a, an event is popular, we've got to be careful not to automatically reject it because it's popular. Some Christians are quick to just go, well, that's popular in culture today, so we must reject it. Uh, it must be popular because it's bad. Or we can embrace it because it's popular. But what Romans 12 says is we've got to be just be discerning. God, what are you doing here? Is this good? Is this part of your plan? What are you saying about this? Don't to automatically reject it. Don't automatically embrace it, but rather discern it, as Romans 12 tells us. Discern what is popular. Is this good? Is this pleasing? And is this part of the will of God? Now I want us to switch our attention from the pool to the man who was sitting for 38 years. 38 years is a long time. Um, I'm not quite there yet, 38. Um, but even for the 21 or more years that I've been alive, <laughs> it is a long time. It's a long time. Uh, 38 years is not necessarily how old this guy was, but just how long he'd been unable to walk for, how long he'd been disabled for. This guy, it seems, would come every day, sit and wait. And then Jesus comes by and asks him this question. Do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And what does the guy say? You, you can imagine, yes. Like that, I think if I was in that position, I'd be like, yes, like, of course, that's why I'm here. But he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say yes. He doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't know why he's being asked that question. But instead, he says... I've got no one to help me in when the water is stirred up. Someone else always gets in ahead of me. Instead of answering the question and taking Jesus up on the offer that was apparent, he gives his reason as to why he hadn't been healed so far. Completely misunderstanding the opportunity in front of him. The man is lying there without the ability to get into the healing water unable to see who Jesus really is. He's got no faith at all. He's got nothing going for him. He's got no ability to help himself in this situation, nothing. And remember in John chapter 4, the passage before this, we've seen the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, and like the crowd in the next chapter that we'll read about in John chapter 6, uh, that gets fed the 5,000 men plus women plus children. It, it's like Jesus is trying to show us something, that no matter what, or Nicodemus in chapter 3, no matter how you come to Jesus, no matter how Jesus comes to you, the offer is the same. The grace is the same. The opportunity is the same. Jesus comes with complete grace, not just a portion of it. In John chapter 1, it says, He is grace. And this is so encouraging, because the good news is not that Jesus will use your effort combined with his efforts. But the gospel is this, that you were lying down on your mat, unable to move, looking for healing in the wrong place, 
unable to see or put your faith in Jesus, and he comes to you and heals you, even if you answer the question wrong, even if you don't say, yes, Jesus, he still comes to you. He still says, get up and walk. He doesn't lead this guy in a sinner's prayer. He doesn't preach the gospel to him. He just heals him. Perhaps the most difficult person there. Perhaps the person who'd been there the longest. And disabled people in the first century um, time of this would not have been anything like what we see today with disabilities. There was hygiene problems, there was social problems, there was um, anything you could imagine. Like these people were the, the poorest of the poor, the most outcast of society. And Jesus walks up to him. He seeks him out. Do you want to get well? Get up and walk. Get up and walk. He comes with complete grace. This guy did nothing to deserve it. Nothing to deserve it. He didn't make a decision. He didn't put his faith in Jesus first. He just receives the grace that Jesus has. And I think this is an encouragement for all of us. No matter where you find yourself this morning, no matter where you've putting, been putting your hope no matter how you've spent your time, if you feel like you've wasted years and years and years looking in the wrong spot, Jesus would still come to you with the same amount of grace. Say, get up and walk. I've got something for you. Which brings us to Jesus. I just want to make a few observations about Jesus in this passage because I think he is so interesting in this passage. If you were to imagine the perfect human being, It's hard for us to imagine because we're all so different, but Jesus is the perfect human, without sin, without fault. And I want us to notice what he does and what he says and how he operates in this passage because I think it's interesting. I think it's maybe different to what we would um, always assume. The first thing I notice is that he goes to where the lame are. He goes to where the poorest of the poor are, the outcast that couldn't get to him. As he's walking through and traveling through towns and he has crowds attracting uh, wherever he is, he chooses in this story to go to this pool, to go to this area where the poorest of the poor were, where the lame are. He goes to them. And it's clear as you read through the Gospels that Jesus has a heart for the poor, for the marginalized, for the outcast. It's so obvious as you read through the Gospels that Jesus is for everyone, regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of wealth. He is for everyone. He doesn't come for a certain type of person, but he comes for everyone, and he challenges everybody. He challenges the wealthy to, to uh, think more carefully about the poor. He challenges uh, those that are those that are sick or those that are um, putting their trust in their, their knowledge. He, tr- he challenges everybody. He goes to those who are rich, tax collectors, cheating people out of money, and at the same time he goes to the poor and the rejected and gives them the same grace. I think sometimes we are quick to jump 
in with legalism and think, this person deserves a bit more grace just because they're just a nice person. They've got a good heart. They've got good motivations. But Jesus doesn't operate like that. When you read the stories, this, this guy who's healed, I mean, put his, his disability aside, the, his response to Jesus, what he says about Jesus afterwards, like there's not a lot that he has going for him. It's not that you would say, well, that guy deserves it. None of us deserve it, and that's the point. And Jesus comes to all of us. The grace of the Bible is that Jesus goes to the one, to each one, regardless of who they are. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman, this guy sitting by the pool, he goes to the one. And then later on in the Gospel of John, we're going to see that when Jesus goes back to his Father, he sends the Holy Spirit who is going to the one for each one. Like Jesus couldn't go to every person on earth as, as he wanted to, but he was demonstrating what the Holy Spirit was going to do. And I, yeah, that's going to be exciting when we get to there. But um, we can't limit the grace that Jesus has. He goes to each and every one. And then he, the other thing I noticed is that he meets the need before talking about sin, before talking about himself or anything else. Now, it's not that he doesn't talk about sin. He does, and we'll get to that verse in a minute that's maybe a bit of a curly one. Um, he does talk about sin, and he does talk about faith and trusting in him, and, but he doesn't do that first in this situation. What does he do? He just meets the need. He just demonstrates love. He doesn't start with a prerequisite for, now let me tell you about Jesus, let me tell you about the gospel, how to be saved. He just meets the need. He sees a need and he does something about it. And I think this is just a simple takeaway that you can think about right now. What needs can you see around you? Maybe in your workplace, maybe amongst your friends, your family. What's a need you are aware of right now in someone's life? And how can you meet that need? What can you do? As you see a need, ask the Holy Spirit, what can I do? How can I meet this need? Regardless of faith, regardless of if they deserve it or not, how can you meet the need? The next thing I notice about Jesus here is he follows up. He doesn't just help and walk away, but he pursues the man afterwards. Verse 14 and 15 says this, After this, Jesus found him. Again, so he's gone to the pool, healed the guy. The guy's walked around and picked up his mat and done the wrong thing. And then Jesus finds him again in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. He pursues the man. It's one thing to help someone in need, but it's another thing to follow up and make sure they're still well. Jesus could have helped the guy and just kept going, but he is interested in more than just doing a kind gesture. He's interested in more than just being seen to do the right thing. He's actually caring about this guy and his future. Which brings us to what he says next. He says, don't sin anymore so something worse doesn't happen to you. This probably begs a few questions. Does this mean that this guy's disability was caused by his sin? Well, it doesn't say that, not necessarily. It might indicate that, but I don't think it necessarily means that. 
Does this mean that if this guy keeps sinning that he'll be disabled again? Or worse? Somehow have a worse disability? I don't think that either. I think what Jesus is getting to is the broader context of John's gospel helps us here, I think, to understand. Jesus is talking about receiving life, like real meaning, real satisfaction, real purpose. He's saying that living a life of sin, a life centered on yourself, a life not trusting in me and not submitting to me is worse than being physically disabled. Now, that's a big claim, but I think that's what Jesus is time and again showing us through the gospel. It's what he shows us through the Samaritan woman as the woman is coming back to the well time and again and he, he equates that with the way she's living her life. You, you keep coming back to this lifestyle of, of seeking your approval and your satisfaction from the relationships with, that you're in and it's, you're always going to be thirsty. It's not going to satisfy you. You need to come to me. And just like this man at the pool, you can hope for healing and hope that that's going to bring your life change. But in actual fact, the, as soon as you get healed, you're still the same person. You, you need more than physical health. If your hope is just being physically healthy, you need more than that because that won't satisfy. That won't last. And next, in the next chapter in John chapter 6, he's going to talk about the, being the bread of life. If you are living for physical health, it will just leave you wanting more. It will never satisfy. And so that's the worst thing that could happen, is that you could just be physically healthy. You could be the, or you could be the richest man or the healthiest person or the most successful person in the world and still miss having satisfaction, purpose, meaning through what Jesus offers. And then the last thing I want to notice about Jesus here is he heals on the Sabbath. Jesus is breaking the law here and causing this guy to break the law. Now, I don't know what to make of this, but I talked about this in John chapter 2 when Jesus turned the water into wine as well, that Jesus is uh, he's provocative in what he's doing, like really provocative in what he's doing to the religious leaders of the day. You think about John chapter 2 when he turns the water into wine. For me, this is a real challenge because the people, the guests at the party, it says, are already inebriated. They've already had too much to drink. And then Jesus presents, here's some more. Have some more wine. I mean, he doesn't say it in those words, but essentially he's just like, we're going to produce some more wine here. We're going to keep this party going. Here, in this story, he's healing the man. He knows what he's doing. He's healing the man on a Sabbath where it is unlawful against the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs to pick up your mat and walk around with it. You cannot do anything on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. You can definitely not pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. And so he's causing tension for this guy and he's causing tension for the religious leaders by, like, he's not expecting the man, I don't think, to get up and not pick up his mat and just say, well, I'm just going to leave my mat there. Like, he's causing this. And I think what he's doing is he's showing us something. He's showing us that the rules, the religion that people have set up as the thing is not the thing. What's actually the thing is Jesus and his love for 
people, his love for humanity. And that's what he wants us to embrace as well, is that Christianity is not about a set of rules. It's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. It's about people. It's about him and it's about others. He is healing this man on the Sabbath. And he's, I mean, he's setting this up. He's going to do not just heal one person on the Sabbath. You think what he's going to do on Easter Sunday on the Sabbath and how many people he's going to heal that day. There is something he is doing and something he is building here in the hearts of people. He wants us to see that he is grace personified. The gospel is not about how to improve your life or improve your morality. It's so much more than that. It's about discovering your deepest need in the person of Jesus. If you care more about the rules than you do about your neighbor, you've missed the point. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about the rules. It's not that he doesn't care about sin. He does, and it's so clear in this passage, but he doesn't care about that more. He cares about the person more. He cares about loving the person most. And so this is good news for you and me as well, that he treats us like this. Because Jesus cares more about you than he does about your rule-keeping. He loves you regardless of your ability to keep the law. It's not to say that Jesus doesn't care for holiness, because it's obvious he does, but he cares more about you and having a relationship with you. And so he and he elevates the relationship. And so this gives us confidence in how we approach him. Because we know that we fall short. We know that we mess up. And Jesus is saying, you know what? I want your heart. I want you. I don't want something you can just put on, but I want you. I want to show you that I love you. And I think it helps us in how we relate to each other. The two great commands that Jesus gives us, to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the whole law. It's summed up in these two, to love God and to love others. This is what it's all about. And I think as we do this, we, we, demonstrate, like, we demonstrate who God is. We reflect his image. There's so much more we could say about this, but I want to encourage you that you can come to God as you are because of how he loves you. And you can love others well because that's what he wants from you. So can we stand and can we pray that we might understand this and embrace this love that he has for us? God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you love us first. God, we thank you that you go for the one. And that you give grace, and not just a portion of it, but you give us yourself. You give us all of who you are. And God, I pray that we might be people that reflect that kind of love, sacrificial, giving all of who we are, laying our lives down for each other, laying our lives down for those that don't even know you or put their trust in you. Loving people like you've loved us. And God, we pray that we might know your love like never before. Your grace like never before. Lord Jesus, now as we respond, as we sing and worship you again, we pray that you might fill our hearts 
with your presence, with your spirit. Help us to see Jesus and less of ourselves. Pray this in your name.